0: Alright, welcome to Acts class and tonight we are in Acts chapter 22 and uh, let's start with a prayer. So Father, we thank you afresh tonight, right in this moment. We thank you for the opportunity once again to open your word and in faith we ask you to teach us this, this night by your spirit. Open these verses to us, show us the context and the amazing truths that you may lay to our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So just uh, by way of review, we remember that we have now completed Paul's three missionary journeys. We just concluded the third and final journey, which would be about 20 years after Paul's conversion. So a lot of time has passed, a lot of traveling and church planting and the Jerusalem Council. We remember all the things that have happened. And you'll notice that this missionary journey ends in Jerusalem Jerusalem rather than Antioch. Typically, they will return back to the sending church. But for reasons that we'll discover tonight, um, he doesn't make it back to Antioch, but goes on from Jerusalem. Um, and this was, of course, known to Paul. On the on the journey, he said, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying, Chains and tribulations await, but none of these things move me, etc. So Paul knew, he was well aware, that, that the Spirit of God was testifying to him, perhaps personally, but certainly through other disciples, through Agabus and others that had prophecies, saying, If you go to Jerusalem... You're going to suffer uh, trouble and persecutions. But nevertheless, Paul knew what awaited him. But Jerusalem was certainly where he wanted to go. So even though the disciples were pleading with him not to go, at the end of chapter 21, we see after those days, we packed up and we went to Jerusalem. And we remember when we ended our last class together in chapter 21, Paul comes to Jerusalem. He meets the brethren the next day, he meets James and the elders and the apostles of Jerusalem. And James basically says, says to him, they, they exchange stories. And Paul says, oh, incredible things have been happening. He shares with him from the mission's journey 2 and 3. He says, so many Gentiles are being saved and Jews too and churches being planted. And James likewise says, and you should, it's, you should know what's happening in Jerusalem. So many Jews are getting saved and they are zealous for the law, but, James has something to tell Paul, and it's relating to certain accusations that have got back uh, to Jerusalem. This is in 21, verse 21 of chapter 21, but they have been informed that you teach all the Jews among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to be circumcised, nor to walk according to the customs. So, We get the picture paul's finished his third missionary journey he comes back to jerusalem he meets james and the other apostles and there was always a little bit of a distance it seems between paul and jerusalem the jew and the gentile thing took such a long time uh, of transition and even here james says paul it's great to have you but you know the rumors that are going around among the jews that are getting saved in jerusalem they're saying that you are wanting to forsake Moses. That's what you're teaching people, forsaking the law and uh, saying that circumcision isn't needed and such things. So, but what did Paul teach? Paul certainly didn't teach that in, in that raw sense. By now, the book of Romans had been in circulation for some time. And we know that Paul taught that by the deeds of the law, no man would be justified, that, that man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. But in the same chapter, he asked the question there in Romans 3.31, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. Paul wasn't saying to forsake the law. His emphasis was just that you are not obligated to keep the law or to live under the law. Or in fact, we are not under the law. If you want to observe it, you're free to but you are not obligated to, and certainly you don't find salvation by keeping the law. That was what he said. So he was just clearly stating the purpose of the law was really to bring us to an understanding of our need for grace, and you are set free from being under the law. But that, was, that was, wasn't how it was portrayed. So James says, listen, this is the problem, but don't worry, Paul, I have a plan. And he says in verse 23, 24. He says, listen, there are four guys that are going to have a Naz- they're, they're going through the process of taking a Nazarite vow, which is a voluntary vow of devotion and it involves shaving their heads and certain ceremonial um, uh, things that would take place at the end of that vow. And, and James says, Paul, listen, you, you do the same. You be purified with them. You even pay the tab. You go with these guys into the temple and then the other Jews will see Paul's right on. He's not saying forsake the law of Moses. So it's a plan to try and dispel what was being said about Paul. So Paul complies. And we cl- concluded with this last time. Why did he comply? Not because, of course, he was wanting to live under the law, but his heart, as we knew, know very well, was to that others would know the gospel. He wanted to see the distance between the Jews and the Gentiles, be bridged. He wanted people to understand the unity of the body of Christ. Anything he could help with that. And also uh, that people would hear the gospel. We remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win them more. And notice this, very good for our context. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. So he's clearly saying, I wasn't under the law, and I I was free in grace, but I I came as one who was under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. For the sake of the gospel, verse 23 says it. So, So he he is purified, he's associated, he's with these four Jews, he's in the temple, and at the end of seven days, almost ended, the Jews from Asia, this is Asia Minor, where the missionary journeys took place, Ephesus, etc. When they saw Paul in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, this is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people, the law and this place. There are three hefty charges against him. He speaks against our people, he speaks against the law, and he speaks against the temple. And furthermore, if that's not enough, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. This is based on a false assumption because the next verse says, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed... So it wasn't true, but they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple, for he was a Gentile, and certainly this was a false accusation. They'd seen Paul in the city, and then they saw him in the temple. Before he was with Trophimus, they saw Trophimus in the temple. They put these together and said, Paul brought him in. But it wasn't the case. We might say, well, aren't they making a bit of a mountain out of a molehill? Does it matter if Trophimus came into the temple, and who brought him in? Why does it matter? Well, for the Jews, it certainly did. For in the temple, there was the area called the Court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles were allowed to go. But they could not go further into the into the temple. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, there's the Jerusalem Museum. It's a fascinating place. And in there, you can see this um, stone with the inscription on it, which has been discovered through archaeological sites there. And that says... Let no foreigner enter in, or only yourself to blame for the following death. And this was like a signpost, if you like, above where from the court of the Gentiles into the temple, saying, at pain of death, you would enter. So stoning was the penalty for defiling the temple this way. So before you know it, it escalates, the whole town is going crazy, verse 30. All of Jerusalem disturbed. The people running together, they grab Paul. They drag him out of the temple. And perhaps at that moment, Paul remembers that the same thing happened to Stephen. Right? Well over 20 years ago now. And he was involved in dragging Stephen out of the temple of that and seeing him as And Now Paul is thinking, wow, this has gone full circle. They're dragging me out of the temple to stone to stone me. So, Verse 31, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And this commander, or um, Chiliarch, is the the name for he would, would be over a thousand men. He heard of the commotion. He quickly gets his men. Let's go down to the temple. Let's find out what's happening. It must be a serious band of men or a serious criminal to be causing so much problem. Let's go and find out what it is. So... Verse 32, he immediately took his soldiers. They come down and they, the people stopped beating Paul. So they hadn't wasted any time. They were already giving Paul a beating by the time he got down there. And the commander came near, verse 33, took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and he asked who he was and what he'd done. By the way, the question is to the crowd. He binds Paul, he turns to the crowd and he says, okay, who can tell me what has he done right now? And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. And when he could not determine what the truth was, he commanded him to be taken back to the barracks. By the way, you may remember Agabus's prophecy when he came to Ephesus, I think it was, and says, listen, he took Paul's belt, remember, and said, whoever's belt this is, you'll go to Jerusalem and you'll be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. And that's exactly what is happening here. And when he reached the stairs, verse 35, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying away with him. And then Paul, as he was about to be led into the barracks, said to the commander, may I speak to you? And the commander, quite surprised, said, oh, do you speak Greek? And... Um, by the way, you never know what it is in your background or in your history or in your education that one day will be brought to the service of the Lord and what certain skill he may, may use. And Paul certainly was uh, multilingual and, and incredible man of education, etc. And, of course, he spoke Greek and he answers the man and he says, well, verse 38, uh, the commander goes on, As they're coming up the stairs towards the barracks, the commander says, Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 to the wilderness? Paul quickly corrects that and says, I am a Jew from Tarsus. Please let me speak to the crowd. He pleads with him, Please let me speak. So the commander's looking at the crowd in the temple who are going crazy. He looks at this man who's been beaten, now in chains, being led up the stairs. Just let me speak to the crowd and things. what have I got to lose? Can't get much worse than this. So, in verse 40, when he'd given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people and when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, and this is where Acts 22 begins. And this is why studying a book like this is so wonderful because we, have, we find the context of the chapter. Chapter 22 is Paul's address to the Jews in Jerusalem. And it takes on a certain flavor because of his audience. So now we know the setting. He's at the top of the stairs. He's been beaten. He's in chains. He's got the Romans around him, the commander, looking down at this people. He begins to speak in Hebrew. A hush falls over the crowd And this is going to be Paul's defense of himself, but more importantly, of the gospel. And of course, in this chapter, he shares his testimony. And there are three times in the book of Acts you can read the testimony of Paul. Of course, all written by Luke, the first historically recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 9. Here in this chapter, Paul is now telling his own testimony in the context to the Jews, and then in a few chapters we'll see him share his testimony once again to King Agrippa. You can only imagine Paul's own reflections, as I'm sure we've had in our life, of how did this happen? How did I get to this place? Right? I'm sure he must have asked himself that question so many times particularly with such a stark contrast of Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul, what God had done in his life. I'm sure he would remember the times when he himself led the persecution against the Christians, perhaps coming to a town and going down by the lake and seeing Christians being baptized and then having them seized and arrested straight afterwards, perhaps in his heart even saying, oh, that would never happen to me. And yet here he was, in this situation, just about to make an incredible defense of the gospel. When when Paul was converted, of course, it was a challenge for people even to to believe it at first. Even Ananias, back in chapter 9, when the Lord came to Ananias and said, I want you to go to Saul of Tarsus and speak to him. Ananias said in 9 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind who will call on your name. Even Ananias said, okay, Lord, I know you're the Lord, but I've heard about this guy, and maybe we've got the wrong guy or something. You know, he found it hard to believe. But here was Paul on the stairs, and he begins his address. In verse 1 brothers and fathers hear the defense that i am now make before you now this opening phrase brothers and fathers or brethren and fathers we would have heard somewhere else in the book of acts and again this is how stephen began his address in acts 7 when stephen was standing before the sanhedrin the jewish council just before he's to be stoned as the first martyr of the church he begins his address brethren and fathers because don't forget Stephen was a Jew Paul was a Jew the first million Christians perhaps in Jerusalem were Jews and they would plead with their brothers regarding the faith that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah and the Savior so brethren and fathers and remember at that time Saul of Tarsus stood he would have he would have stood it when when Stephen would have been stoned would have remembered that day would have had such an incredible impression on him and when they heard he spoke to them in the hebrew language they became even more quiet and he said so let's add to the picture here remember the roman commander and the other romans now they're in the dark he begins to speak in hebrew and they have no idea what's being said they just suddenly see when he begins to speak all of a sudden a hush comes over the crowd and what's he saying and they just let him begin to speak, and it continues. So he says, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus. He gives some of his background. He, he drops the name Gamaliel, who would have been a very well-known rabbi. Perhaps the, it was known as the beauty of the law. He was an incredible teacher. To, be, to say that he was your teacher would have been a high-ranking commendation. Um, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So he's recognizing their zeal, their passion, their fire. Even as they were expressing wanting to kill Paul, he says, listen, I understand your zeal for the temple, for the law, for our people. I I was there. Verse 4, even this is how much I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. That's how zealous I was. If you don't believe me, you can ask the high priest and the elders, verse 5, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. for From them I received letters to the brothers. I journeyed to Damascus to take those there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So listen, go ask the high priest. He'll tell you my story. They'll tell you how zealous I was. I was the one who was leading the persecution back in Acts 8 and on into chapter 9, etc., and I was on my way, and here he goes into his, his own testimony, verse 6. As it happened, I journeyed, I came near Damascus. I was on my way about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone about me. So Paul is now simply telling it the way it happened. He's telling it to these Jews. And remember, Paul has such a love and a heart for his own brothers in the flesh, the, the Jewish people. And here he has... The audience to share his testimony. He tells in verse 7, there was a great light. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he clearly and boldly tells this mob of zealous, passionate Jews exactly what happened. He says, listen, I was as shocked as you are this day. When I was on the Damascus Road over 20 years ago, I was as shocked as you. On that day, I asked the question, verse 8, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, from the text, we don't see that there was any response from the crowd. At this point, it seems that they maintained silence and they listened. When he got to this potent moment, when he would say, listen, I was as shocked as you when he told me, when he said the name Jesus, it was like the bottom fell out for me. It was like everything, it was like a paradigm shift in my life. Everything I had believed, everything I was zealously passionate about, I suddenly realized I was on the wrong side. nevertheless i 'm telling you my story that phrase "I am Jesus whom you are persecuting it 's a fascinating phrase it shows us the connection between those who are persecuted or the persecuted church or those who suffer for their faith or whatever They're, There really, there's a a recognition here that the Lord makes that when in you persecuting the church, you are persecuting me, and really your resistance, your resentment, your antagonism, although you may think it's being directed at people, it's really directed to me. He says in verse nine, "Those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice." So they heard a noise, but they didn't understand the words. But Paul certainly did. Saul certainly did. He understood, and there was only one question he could ask. The first was, who are you? Once that was clear, what would you have me do? What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, remember, he's relaying this to these Jews in the temple. The Lord said to me, arise. And go into Damascus and you will be told all the things that are appointed for you to do. So listen, I couldn't deny what was happening to me. This was my encounter on the Damascus road. I met the Lord. He said for me to go to Damascus, what would you have done? I went into Damascus. And since I couldn't see, verse 11, for the glory of that light... I was blind, I was led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Verse 12. And one Ananias, now notice these words, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Now in Acts 9 it doesn't say that, it just says Ananias, a certain disciple. Because Luke is writing the book of Acts as a history primarily for the church. But here Paul is addressing the Jews in the temple and he's wanting to relate to them so he makes note that Ananias was a devout man, a Jew, devout according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews there. Perhaps you could even go to Damascus today and Ananias, we don't know if he was still alive, but people would tell you about him. And he came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul. Such powerful words. For here was the lamb speaking to the lion. Here was the persecuted speaking to Saul of Tarsus, recognizing now he was coming to the faith in the same Lord and would call him Brother. That was the beginning of Saul of Tarsus's understanding of the body of Christ, being a brother. Receive your sight, and at that very hour I received my sight, and I saw him. Verse 14. And then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. Again, these are terms that this Jewish audience would certainly have understood. He's trying to identify with them as much as possible. The God of our fathers. That I would know his will. He speaks about the just one. Again, referring to the Messiah. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Of course, the sins not being washed away by the water in the act of baptism, but baptism picturing what has happened in a person's life through the regeneration of, of the Spirit of God. The being, sins being because of the blood, he could make that claim. Why are you waiting? And it implies here, of course, that he called on the name of the Lord, that he got baptized, as we know he did in Acts 9. Paul here is saying to this Jewish audience This was the moment of my salvation. I did call on the name of the Lord, and I got baptized to show it. And the man instrumental was this little disciple, this Jewish man, devout according to the law. He helped me in my faith. And then we read in verse 17 something insightful that's not mentioned anywhere else apart from here in this account. We don't read of this in Acts 9 or in Galatians 1 or anywhere else. He says, now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and I was in a trance. So Paul adds this in his testimony to this Jewish audience. He says, listen, not only did I become a Christian in Damascus, but when I went back to Jerusalem, I was in the temple and I was praying and I had a vision. By the way, there are six visions that I could muster up. I think it's six. If you find any more, you can tell me. But six major ones, of course, the Damascus vision relating to his own salvation in Acts 9, the Jerusalem vision, which he's now alluding to, which happened on the return from Damascus, listed here in verse 22, the Arabian vision when he was in Arabia for three years, mentioned in Galatians 1, the Macedonian vision, from Troas on the second missionary journey where he was the call to missions over to Europe. Uh, the Corinthian vision, also on that same missions trip in Corinth when the Lord encouraged him and said, don't fear, stand and preach, there's many people in this city. And then another Jerusalem vision, which will be in the next chapter that we'll study. But in this vision, what does the Lord say to him? So remember, Saul of Tarsus, now converted, returns back to Jerusalem. He's in the temple, he's praying, and the Lord says to him, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now again, we have to quickly highlight the context because you could read this out of context and not get the full impact of what's happening. He is in, this is 20 plus years later. Now he's in Jerusalem once again. He's standing at the top of the stairs, speaking to this Jewish audience that has not accepted his his ministry and the gospel. And he's reaccounting what happened when he was first converted and said, listen, this is what Jesus said to me, that the the Jews would not accept uh, my testimony about him. And I said, Lord... They themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. So so Paul, when he was first converted, and Jesus said, listen, they're not going to accept your testimony. Paul said, wait a minute, they know who I am, Lord. They know I'm Saul of Tarsus. I've got a reputation. They know that I wouldn't be making this stuff up. They know if I come back and I'm converted and I'm flying the Christian flag, they know that something serious and real and miraculous has happened. Believe me, they're going to accept my testimony. And the Lord says, and he goes on to say, even with the blood of Stephen, your martyr, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. They'll believe my testimony. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They won't accept your testimony, Paul. Go. And he says, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. In other words, you're in Jerusalem. The, Jews, the Jewish people are not going to accept my testimony. Go, and I will send you to the Gentiles. And we know that one of Paul's titles was the apostle to the Gentiles although he had such a love for the Jews and he always went to the synagogues, etc. But God was using him as a vessel of the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter was the apostle to the Jews, primarily. And notice this, up to this word they listened to him and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. Up to this word. Not the word Jesus, but the word Gentiles was the word that, again, threw them into a frenzy. And the Roman commander and the Romans watching the quiet crowd thinking, I don't know what he's saying, but he's boy, he's got their attention and they're listening. And as soon as Paul mentions the word Gentiles, it goes all crazy again. And the Romans thinking, I wonder what he said, not knowing that the word actually related to him talking about you guys, the Romans. He's talking about the Gentiles, the non-Jews. As soon as he mentioned the gospel would go to them, they went crazy. Verse 23. And as they cried out, they tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air. And the commander <laughs> ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so they might know why they shouted so against him. So again, the commander says, listen, I gave this guy a platform. I handed him the microphone. I don't know what he said, but I'm going to find out. And I'm going to make sure he he tells us exactly what he said, why the crowd went crazy, and we are going to scourge him. And of course, the scourging was the Romans, uh, not only the Romans, but used by the Romans. Uh, Typically, it would be leather strands often different uh, lengths they would have pieces of bone or metal in them to have an effect that would sear through the flesh and in credits often people would die just from this process itself and this is what they're going to do to paul they're going to scourge him so in verse 25 when they stretched him out for the whips Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge, is the word, a man who is a Roman citizen and not condemned? Oh, this got their attention. They didn't know that he was a Roman citizen. Paul suddenly plays the master card and says, I'm not getting scourged today. Tells us it's not always God's will to suffer because if we remember back in Philippi in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas were beaten in the prison and Paul accepted that beating. He didn't stand up and say, I'm a Roman. He accepted that beating. It seems that that was part of a strategy God led him for the sake of the Philippi church in that Roman province. Paul didn't play the card then. He he was led by God. But here is not the time for that. So he he plays the card. And of course, this is going to be used instrumentally for him actually to go to Rome back in 1923 he says I will go to Jerusalem and then after that I will go on to Rome so in verse 26 when the centurion heard that he went and told the commander saying be careful what you're about to do this guy is a Roman citizen the commander came to him verse 27 and says tell me are you a Roman citizen and he said yes So the commander answers him and says, well, listen, I brought this citizenship, this Roman citizenship for a large sum. How much should you pay for it? Paul says, I am freeborn. For you could get the Roman citizenship by paying a large sum of money. Perhaps this man was a Greek or something and he purchases Roman citizenship. It could be done, but it would cost you an arm and a leg. But to be free-born was quite a privilege, quite something to have, to possess, to say. It gave you certain privileges. I was born a Roman citizen. And immediately, verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. They said, okay, that's it. And the commander also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. In the last verse. But on the next day, because he still wanted to find out what happened, he still wanted to say, okay, I'm not going to bind you. I'm not going to flog you or scourge you. But I would still like to know what happened yesterday when you were speaking to that crowd. What did you say? I want to find out. So... Desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, this is the council, the high council, the supreme court of the the Jews. This was the Sanhedrin, the 70-member court that the apostles had stood before, that Jesus had stood before. In the book of Acts, we see four times. Is it four times? Yeah, four times we see them stand before the Sanhedrin. Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. Then Peter with all the apostles in Acts chapter 5. Then Stephen, of course, that, that message that he gave in, in, in uh, Acts 7, the longest uh, chapter in the book of Acts, Stephen's message was to the Sanhedrin. And here we have Paul standing before the Sanhedrin. And um, and this is how chapter 23 begins. So chapter 22 is Paul's address to the to the Jews in Jerusalem in the temple, and chapter 23 is going to be Paul's address before the Sanhedrin. That's quite an audience. So, Father, we thank you for this time, being able to go through this chapter together. We thank you that we could just frame the context and consider... Uh, the the potency of what is happening and just as you are uh, leading Paul on now in his journey towards Rome. And we pray that you would open up these verses more and more to us as we consider them and prepare our hearts for the next time we're together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if anyone has any comments or questions, uh, feel free to chime in to add anything or ask anything, you're welcome that's a good question that's a good question um, you, you would obviously have to have it on some type of you have to have it parchment of some kind that would have some Roman seal on it to, to authenticate it yeah but I mean how they how they were able to verify that and you know for there not to be forgeries and things like that but I guess the Roman seals were were part of part of that authentication yeah Just because his father would have would have been a Roman citizen, how he got it, we don't know right. but but if you were born from a Roman, you would have you would be freeborn, you would have the citizenship, yeah and of course, because it was the Roman Empire, for you to be a Roman citizen, you had incredible privileges above above anyone who wasn't Roman, above the Jews or anyone, so for example, binding or scourging or Crucifying or those types of things couldn't be done to to a Roman. Yeah. Anyone else? We find out later that he, because of the privilege of being a Roman citizen, he could go to Caesar and appeal to Caesar. Yeah. So we find that out later, but that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. He has the, the. privilege. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's that's going to be his uh, ticket to Rome. He. He had the desire to go to Rome. Uh, of course, Paul didn't start the church in Rome. And there's a bit of a question, where did the church of Rome come from? There's a curious verse in Acts 2, 11, at Pentecost, where it says, and strangers from Rome, who were there at Pentecost when it all happened. And we presume those strangers from Rome went back to Rome, and a church was born. And Paul, of course, later writes his letter to them, but in the letter to Rome, he says, Oh, I so deeply desire to be with you. And that was his desire to go to Rome. And of course, he did. Perhaps not in the way that he imagined, um, but he did arrive in Rome. And, and, uh, and it was because he, he made the appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen. Yep. Okay, anyone else? Uh yes not off hand but yes I'll have to look it up but yeah we remember we did we did cover that it was I think it was on the second missionary journey somewhere somewhere yeah yeah so we can look that up say that uh, Peter was the disciple for the Jews that he was the first pope Well, he's he's referred to as the first pope by the Catholic Church, but of course, that's not something that we we recognise. Yeah, so that whole line of the papacy is not something recognised in, in 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 our in our as evangelicals. Yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I'm sure Peter, if he could speak to us today, would be very upset that he's referred to as the first pope. <laughs> uh, but anyway. Yeah, and of course, the Catholic Church, they look to Matthew uh, 16 as the passage for that, where Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And that was after Peter's confession, when Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock, you you are Petros, and upon this Petra, and Petros was like a small stone. It's like a play on words in the Greek. You are, you are like a little stone, Peter. But upon this immovable rock, I will build my church. And the immovable rock wasn't Peter or the papacy, but it was the revelation of who Christ was that Peter had just confessed. You are the Christ, and and Jesus said, on that rock, on this rock, who I am, I will build my church. But but the Catholics say. Well, Peter, upon this rock, we built, this is the true church, but it's not, it's not what it meant. Yeah. Okay, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless us all.